Okay, let's go back 450 years before Christ. Uh, you're part of the nation of Israel. You're one of the few that has come back to the land. You may remember that uh, the northern and the southern kingdoms both, both rebelled against the Lord and demonstrated a sustained pattern of rebellion. And so the Lord ended both nations and deported them. The uh, northern kingdom never to hear from again. Southern kingdom, you're part of that, and you come back. You're part of a small remnant. You are uh, still under an occupied nation. You're under the Persian Empire, probably the Persian Empire that Daniel talks about. You're small, part of a small contingent of people that's made it back to the land. Uh, you have rebuilt the temple. The temple has been rebuilt, but it's nowhere near the glory days of King David. Nowhere near. It's a small temple compared to what was there under David and Solomon. So one day you're listening to a prophet, Malachi, who comes through in the tradition of the prophets, talk to your people. And, uh, and he, like all of them, exposes the sin of your nation, which is continuing. You ha haven't stopped yet. So you're glad to be back. But the fact that the majority of the nation is not back yet reveals that there's still sin. And so he walks around exposing the sin. He talks about God's judgment. He talks about a coming future glory. You can't wait for that. How long is that going to till it comes, Lord? And then he says these words. It's the last thing he says. You see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. When the day of the Lord comes, if you are a faithful believer in Christ, this is a good day. If you're not, this is a terrifying day. So it's called the great and dreadful day. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and destroy the land. So, the last thing you hear talks about God's judgment, coming future glory, and a return of Elijah. Now, other things are happening in the world around you, not just your own little country. Socrates is alive at this time, one of the great Greek philosophers. Aristotle and several of the other prominent philosophers are about to be born. The Parthenon in Athens has recently been completed. Hippocrates is alive and writing, doing a lot of work in medical, the medical field. The great Samaritan temple at Mount Gerizim is being built. So the world around you is growing. The world's passing you by, and you, stuck with your remnant, are there, hearing how the Lord is going to continue to punish you. Little did you know this would be the last time you would hear from God. When Malachi said those words, he was done. And God got really quiet for 450 years. Not a word. Not a word. After you die, life in your country continues to, uh, it continues on. Here's what happens after you die. Along with Alexander the Great, Persian rule comes to an end and the Hellenistic period begins. Whole different set of masters. Eventually, the evil, the very evil Antiochus Epiphanes IV assumes control and he decimates the temple for your children, your offspring. He doesn't destroy it. 
He actually decimates it. He goes then and deliberately blasphemes and mocks your God and makes this temple unclean and unusable. Some of your own countrymen rebel, the Maccabees. You have internal conflict. What do we do? What do we do? Because we're without leadership. Through this period of turmoil and, and dark times, the various sects of Judaism begin to rise and float to the surface. And each of them bring their own variation on what this coming Messiah is going to look like because God's quiet. He's not saying a word. All you have is what the prophets said. That's it to go on. So they begin to develop all kinds of traditions and thoughts about it. It's during this period that the Mosaic Law, which you love so much, now becomes a legal code. It wasn't a legal code before that. The king was the legal code. And uh, the Mosaic Law was how you worship the Lord, and it gave you guidelines on how to treat people and how to stay in good relationship with God and with each other. But now it becomes a law code. Why? Because God's silent. Got to find something. So the Pharisees begin to rise, the Sadducees begin to appear on the scene, and they begin to apply the law code differently. So you have a very legalistic structure developing. Then you have Caesar Augustus come along, and the Roman Empire is born. But guess what? You're still an occupied people. Same story, different rulers. Where's your God? He hasn't said a word for 450 years. He's quiet. If our God really loved us, would he let this happen? I mean, would he abandon us to the world ruler? Is that what he would do? And then slip out quietly out the back door and never to be heard from again? And then 450 years later, something amazing happens. Are you ready for this? You're not going to like what you hear. I can already tell you. When God decides to speak, you're not going to like it. Are you ready for it? This is your only chance. Because what did he say at the end of Malachi? I will send you Elijah or else I will utterly destroy everything. You got two choices. Listen to the word you're about to hear, which you're not going to like for destruction. Are you prepared for this event? Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both well advanced in years. They're old. And she's barren. Have we heard this before? We have, haven't we? Think about where we've come. We started with Isaac 2,000 years ago before Christ. 4,000 years ago from our vantage point. Sarah's barren. Think about the things we've talked about. We've talked about Moses. We've talked about Samson. We talked about Samuel last week. We talked about infertility last week. These women have some things in common. God picked the most unlikely people to demonstrate, and by the way, that's true all the time in the Bible, the most ordinary, unlikely people to demonstrate his power. Here we have another barren mother. 
Verse 8, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. You see, the, the uh, altar of incense was in the holy place right next to the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And they, twice a day, they would, they would, the people would gather and worship and offer up their prayers to the Lord. And this altar symbolized the prayers of the people going up continuously. So they burned incense on it continuously. This is a fantastic picture of how God listens to us. But it moves on beyond that because later on, Paul takes the same imagery of incense and says that we, as his people, are a fragrant aroma to the Lord. You think of a little baby, your children, how good they smell before they're teenagers, right? <laughs> think of how good they smell, right? That's what we smell like to the Lord. He loves us. We are his creation. We are his people. In the book, in the book of Hebrews, when it describes the temple, it describes the altar of incense, not in the holy place, but in the holy of holies, which is always a challenge for New Testament majors to figure that out. I think what he's saying there is that's the true picture of this eternal sanctuary, that we are a fragrant aroma and God hears us continuously 24 hours a day. So Zechariah is there. It's his job. And he's offering incense on the altar then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Okay, he's all alone in this holy place, offering the incense, and an angel appears. How would you respond? You'd think you'd say hallelujah, right? That's what you think you'd say. Anytime people come into the presence of the Lord, they are terrified. Look at his response. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. So what did the angel say to him? Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Do not be afraid. This is the most often repeated command in the Bible. Did you know that? Do not be afraid. All the way back in Exodus, they've just come out of slavery to Egypt. They're standing at the base of Mount Sinai. They haven't met God yet. They've seen the ten plagues. They've seen his power. They've experienced that that earth-shaking power, but they haven't met their God. By the way, God had been silent for 450 years before this event. Huh, kind of a pattern, huh? So, so they cry out to the Lord. He comes down and leads them out of Exodus, but they haven't actually met their God. They've only heard about him. So listen to what happens. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes. Be ready by the third day. Now remember, they're in the desert. A whole nation washing their clothes that's called sacrifice. Where's the water coming from? Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or even touch the foot of it. Whoever touches this mountain is to be put to death. Because for that brief period of time, Mount Sinai was God's home. And he's communicating to them, I'm a holy God. And you have to learn, I am a holy God. You touch my house, you die. 
So the people go right up to the edge of the mountain to meet God. They're so excited to meet their Lord. Listen to what the Lord does. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Can you, can you just imagine this? Thunder and lightning is a thick cloud you can't see, and there's this trumpet blast just blaring and blaring. Everyone in the camp trembled. So the Lord, Moses led them out to meet God. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently. This is a major earthquake. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Moses goes up and gets the Ten Commandments. One chapter later, he comes back down. When the people saw the thunder and lightning, I'm now in verse 20, a chapter later, and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. I would too. Whenever you enter the presence of the Lord, it's earth-shattering. Earthquakes, trumpets, smoke, fire, lightning, thunder. They stayed at a distance. So in Exodus 19, they're all excited. They're at the base of the mountain. They're right up against it without touching it. In Exodus 20, after God introduced himself, they're on the other side of the valley. What happened? They ran. They were terrified. So Moses chases after him. <laughs> and here's what they say to Moses. Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But please don't have God speak to us or we will die. We had no idea how powerful this God was. So what does Moses say? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Most often repeated command. Do not be afraid. You see, God has come to test you, he says, so that the fear of God will be inside of you to keep you from sinning. This is the verse that explains all the other verses down the Bible about fearing God. Fearing God doesn't mean to be afraid of him. That's why both the angel and Moses said, don't be afraid. That's where we get the idea of reverential awe. Can you picture Moses saying, God did this on purpose to show you how powerful he is because we were about to go into a land and have to fight. And I want you to know that with God on your side, you have nothing to fear. Do you see how as they begin to learn this, that terror and fear turns to awe? Wow, my dad's bigger than your dad. My God's bigger than your God. So for the rest of the Bible, this idea of fearing the Lord becomes having great awe at his power and who he is. So what does the angel say? Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Apparently he's been praying for his wife because she's barren. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You are to call him John. Now he will be a holy person. He will be joy, he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. Have we heard that before? In this series, we have, haven't we? And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. So then the question is, what is his mission? Here's a summary of it. 
he, uh, many of the people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord their God. Because you see, the nation is scattered. They're disunified, disrupted. They haven't heard from the Lord in 450 years. They're all over the map theologically. They don't even get along. Pharisees don't like Sadducees. The zealots don't like the Pharisees. The common people are just stuck, as how common people everywhere. With whoever happens to be in charge, they leave them to their power and abuse. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Ah. The last thing we heard from Malachi is, I will send you Elijah. And Jesus, a little bit later on, says, and John the baptizer is Elijah, if you take or believe and receive. So he will go before the Lord in the spirit of power, Elijah, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He would prepare the way for the Messiah. Now the story goes on. Zechariah does something kind of funny. Zechariah asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? <clears throat> okay, he's standing in front of an angel. <laughs> how do I know this is really going to happen? I mean, I get it. He's an old man, and he says that. I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Are you sure you got the message right from the Lord? So the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. <clears throat> and now you will be silent and not be able to speak until this day happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So, because you doubted, you can't speak. He comes out of the temple, and everybody knew something had happened, but he couldn't tell them what it was. It's great. I just love that part of the story. So he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. The Messiah. By the way, uh, listen to what uh, his wife says. When the time of service was completed, he returned home. After that, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. The Lord has done this for me. And in these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. By the way, the fact that she was barren, she knew full well the Lord had done that to her as well. Can't take the good without the bad. She knew that. Every wife in Israel knew if they weren't pregnant, the Lord had made that decision. And that was dishonoring. So now he's, she's celebrating. Okay. Remember last week we read Hannah's song? Mark read it when she got pregnant. Pretty soon we're going to hear Mary's song. Mary gets pregnant six months after this, by the way, with Jesus. We're going to hear Mary's song, but you have to wait till Advent for that. Both all these women, they turn to the Lord and they, uh, they celebrate who he is. <clears throat> so what is John's mission? You have to go to chapter 3 to figure this out. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and Luke lists a whole bunch of the rulers here, so you know he's telling the truth. Verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the hill country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's called by God, and he's called by God to prepare the way for the Messiah, and he's called by God in fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, 
the crooked roads will be made straight, the rough ways will be smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. So he comes to prepare the way of the Lord. What does that preparation look like? Repentance. You know what repentance is? It's agreeing with God that you are sinful and broken. That's what repentance is. He came preaching a baptism, baptism of repentance. That's how he prepared the people for the coming Messiah. We're going to be celebrating Advent starting two weeks from today. When's the last time you repented? We get distracted, don't we? We get weighed down under the pressures of life. If things go well, we get excited. We get weighed down on our sports team, our pressures of our job. When's the last time you just knelt down and you said, God, I'm, I'm sorry for being sinful. I'm sorry for my choices that dishonor you. Maybe your marriage is over. Maybe you're mean to your children. Maybe you're ruthless to your employees. Maybe you're not a person of integrity at work. I don't know. You fill in the blank. I can't, I can't only do me. I can't even do my wife. I've tried. It just doesn't work. I can only do me. When is the last time you knelt down and said, I am sorry, God, for being so sinful? Because except for the grace of the Lord, every one of you would be destroyed. Every one of you. That's how he prepares the people for the coming Messiah. And that's how I would like to prepare you for the coming of Advent, the birth of Christ. Over the next two weeks, I'm going to encourage you, starting today, every day, just stop and say, Lord, I am sinful. What did, what did Peter say at the end of his life? I am an unworthy man. He betrayed Jesus three times. And after Jesus rose from the dead, he goes out and he's fishing. And Jesus says, save the net on the other side and catch the fish. And he knew it was the Lord and he jumped in and he swam to meet him. And he said, I am an unworthy man. That's what repentance is. It doesn't hurt you to humble yourself a little bit. Hmm. So how does he do it? You're not going to like what he says. We haven't even gotten to the bad part yet. Verse 7, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? So just as a viper flees from a coming fire, so the Jews are trying to escape the wrath that's coming. So what does John exhort them to do? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. It doesn't say produce fruit in keeping with success. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. God, I am unworthy. I am sinful. Forgive me. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. In other words, you have nothing to hide behind. Nothing at all. 
They couldn't claim protection of Abraham's offspring. The people respond appropriately. He says, goes a little bit further. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce fruit, it will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people say, what should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none. Give away your worldly goods to those that need it. Anyone who has food should do the same. The tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? He says, don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Remember the story of Zacchaeus when you learned in Sunday school? Jesus went to his house. Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I'm going to have lunch with you today. The fact that the Lord came into Zacchaeus' house, what did Zacchaeus do? He said, Lord, he was convicted. He repented. I'm going to take half of my wealth and give it to the poor, and the other half, I'm going to pay back four times for every person I cheated. What did Jesus say? Today, salvation has come to this house. That's repentance. That's what that is. The soldiers asked him, what should we do? And he said, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were expectantly waiting and were all wondering in their hearts if John might be, possibly be the Messiah. So the people respond appropriately. But here's the core question. What would cause all these people to come out to listen to John? The other gospel writers tell us that all of Judea and Jerusalem came out to hear him. I mean, the whole city comes out. What would cause them to do that? And I think there are three things that he said that brought these people out. Remember, Judea, Israel was divided. So the different groups, sectarian groups, had a different perspective on what the Messiah was going to be like. And they all focus on three things, and it relates to us today. The first one, verse 16. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful, there's the word, than I will come, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. The first one is that the Messiah is going to be powerful. They knew this. They knew it. The Messiah was long associated with power, but they thought the Messiah was going to break the Roman rule. In fact, a lot of documents of this period of time they talk about the fact that if you don't believe in the power of the Messiah, you're not even genuinely a believer. You're not even a child. You're not even a part of the community of faith. You have to believe in the power of the Messiah. What they didn't expect was the power of the Messiah was not going to be demonstrated politically. They didn't expect that. What did he do? He started healing people. Is that powerful? Is it? Is it powerful? Is there anything more powerful than raising somebody from the dead? There is. Forgiving someone. He got in a lot of trouble for forgiving people. Because that's a, a purview left only to God. There's nothing more power than forgiving people. Now think about the power Christ has given you to forgive people. Forgive people. He came and started demonstrating power in a way they never expected. They missed it. He also says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So this Messiah brings a better baptism. There was a different group that focused on his, on his judgment and his purification. And it was a baptism of spirit and fire, not water. John says, I baptize you with water, but the one who's coming... He's coming in two weeks, by the way. Did I tell you that? Advent. He 
He's going to baptize you with fire and the Spirit. There's many different interpretations of this verse, but I believe it refers to the purifying work of the Spirit. All throughout the Old Testament, we have these language put together. Are you able to handle the cleansing, purifying work of Jesus? Mark talked last week about uh, some. many of you have hurts. You do have hurts. Live with it. I can't say it any plainer. Be faithful anyway. I've had hurts. You have a choice every time something happens to you. And it will happen. Your faith will be tested. That's what this Messiah does. And sometimes he tests you in ways that are almost beyond your ability to bear. Almost. These women were barren. They were completely dependent on the Lord. So when you experience that pain, pain of loss, pain of failure, whatever it looks like, bear up under it. Live out your life faithfully. It's important. That's why Paul says in Philippians that to you it has been grace. We use the word granted because we don't have the verb form for grace in our language. To you it has been graced by God to suffer. Why? Two reasons. It strengthens your faith, number one. It really puts you to the test, and it makes you say, what do I really believe? What am I willing to go to the wall for and die? Okay. But the second reason is suffering is the one thing you have in common with the world. That's the language they get. Let the Lord take you through suffering. That'll open your ministry up into the lives of your neighbors. Just don't blow it. Don't shake your fist at God. Don't divide. Don't start grumbling, complaining. Don't walk away. No, bear it faithfully. That's what he's asking you to do. And then finally, the Lord is a judge. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So he's pictured as a winnowing fork, ready to judge immediately. All the prophetic books about the coming Messiah when he brings his new covenant, there's lengthy passages on judgment. When he comes, he will judge. He is the judge. Do not forget that. You are not. He is God. You are not God. You got two choices. Do it his way or don't do it his way. The winnowing fork is in his hand. The key is that it's the Messiah, not us, who would judge. If the Lord came back right now, we all long to have the Lord come back. Do we really? If the Lord came back, what would he find? Would he find faithfulness or would he find a lot of carnage behind? Would he find faithfulness or would he find poor decisions? Would he find our faith that's genuine alive or would he find bad decisions that have hurt people? What would he find? Your choice, not mine. The Lord is coming in two weeks. That's what Advent is about. Are you ready for him to come back? We're going to celebrate communion in just a second. You know what communion is? It's an invitation to enter into the presence of the Lord, experience his grace, and have life. That's what it is. That's what communion is. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending all these people throughout history 
We have miraculous stories, miraculous beginnings to help us to get ready for your coming. Now, Lord, in two weeks, we start Advent. And Father, this is our time of preparation for Advent. Because, Lord, we're going to enjoy Advent. We're going to laugh. We're just going to find joy through the whole experience. But, Lord, first we have to prepare ourselves. Help us, Lord, I pray, to do that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and uh, take the offering. Thank you for your generosity. Thanks for taking such good care of our church. As we prepare to uh, celebrate the Lord's death together, communion, I'd like to ask several of you to come up and just go ahead and get us ready with the, the bread and the cup. And uh, some of you come up and get ready to pray with us. We're going to enjoy it. I mentioned communion is an opportunity to meet the Lord. It's an invitation. It's not just, it's not just bread and juice. It's not that at all. It's an invitation to enter into a relationship with the Lord. I want you to picture this today as we prepare and move toward Advent. This first row here, I want you to picture this as kind of a threshold, okay? When you cross this threshold, you're stepping into the presence of the Lord. Just image that for just a moment. This is one of those places in life where you get to meet the Lord. You get to meet Him. You live in His presence all the time, but it is a conscious time where you get to step into His presence. As you're coming forward, Go ahead and humble yourself. Go ahead and repent before you get there, before you cross that line. What did he say? On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and said, this is my body which is given for you, each of you, every one of you. Sacrifice his life. Do this in remembrance of me. If you don't know where you stand with this Jesus guy, he gave his life for you to forgive you. There's no more powerful thing in the universe than to forgive someone for sin. That's far more powerful than losing someone for dead. He's going to do that too, by the way. That's what resurrection's all about for each of us. 
And he's the proof of that in that he was raised from the dead. You find forgiveness. You, you have a savior. His name is Jesus. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents a new covenant in my blood. A new covenant. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. So the second part of communion is you're never going to be alone. Ever again. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. You'll never be alone. So when you come forward, just mentally picture you're crossing the threshold into the Lord's presence. Go ahead and humble yourself. Go ahead and repent. And just say, Lord, I'm sorry for being a sinner. I'm sorry for doing, maybe you have something you did that you need to apologize for. This is part of the journey to prepare us for Advent is to, Father, thank you for sending your son. Christ, thank you for paying such a tremendous cost for us, such a huge sacrifice, and then demonstrating the incredible power of forgiving us. And it takes forgiving us a way of celebrating this together. In your name we pray, amen. Come and enjoy communion.
over the next two weeks, we are preparing for Advent. Advent is such a great time. It's filled with so much joy. This room's going to change. You're going to see stuff everywhere, lights. <laughs> wonderful, delightful things. Isn't it? Isn't Christmas time wonderful? Have you ever, how many of you get to the end of Christmas and there's this big letdown? You felt it? How many of you felt it? Yeah, you all have, haven't you? You know, that's the highest point of divorce each year is right after Christmas in our country. Not divorce, suicide. <laughs> Wrong thing. Highest point of suicide. I don't know, maybe divorce. <laughs> you know what? To, you know how to help stop that and prevent that, that letdown? Is all the way through Advent, just stay focused on repentance. Bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. Repentance is easy. It's just regularly. Once a day, I would encourage you once a day just to stop and say, God, I'm not worthy. I'm grateful. God, I'm a sinner. Help me in my unbelief. Forgive me. Just do that. Christmas will mean something very different for you. I'm not trying to take away from all the joy. That's a good part. Mix it, though. Mix it together. May at the end of Christmas, you'll feel very different. You'll enjoy this season. Have a great week. Go in peace. This is amazing grace. I sing for all that you've done.